So I'm going to bet that if you got word that you had family coming to visit and stay with you for a few days, that there would be some work you would do to prepare for their arrival. Um, Some of you would go into deep cleaning mode, and you'd clean behind the refrigerator. You'd clean places in the house that you haven't seen in months, but you're afraid that your company might see. Some of you would uh, make sure that you set out fresh bed linens and cleaned up. Some of you would get a refill on your Prozac prescription or schedule an extra appointment with your therapist. It just really all depends who's coming to visit. John the Baptist had to prepare for the arrival of the Son of God, for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 3, we're going to see just how he went about preparing for that company, preparing for Jesus So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now, I just read a bunch of names and places that probably have very little meaning to you. And throughout Luke's writing, these 52 chatter, chapters, he's going to give us a lot of na- names of, of people and places that are unfamiliar to us. And I, I don't want you to just allow those to wash past you as like, well, I don't even know who those people are. It doesn't matter. And know that Luke is speaking to a group of people in his writing that would have known. And it helps them concrete in their minds the places and the moments that this happened. It's likewise, if I told you a story of something that happened this past week, and I said, at the corner of Green River Road and Morgan Avenue on Wednesday, you could think of a place and a time. And you might be even able to say, oh, I went through there on Wednesday. I went through that intersection on that day. And so for the people who are reading this, that Luke is writing this to immediately, they they can place themselves in some type of proximity to the story. And just like I could say to you during the Reagan years or during the Obama administration, and you could think of a time period, and not only a time period, a connotation of what that administration brought in our land, the same thing could happen for these people. And for people like Pontius Pilate and Tiberius Caesar and Herod, the connotation would not have been good. Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus, a Greek probably with some standing in the Greek and Roman world, and he would have known these names. Names of people that had incredible power and were corrupt and had reigns of terror over the people that they reigned over. And so Luke is helping them cement this at a place and time. Now, the application for us is that this is not mythology. This isn't just something that Luke is making up. He's writing about things that happened in a place and time. This is a historical work. Luke is a documentary maker, and he's writing out the events and times of the life of Jesus in the details of real locations among real people. So this is real. And so Luke cements this moment in the reality of what takes place, but then he lays on top of that reality of times and places they're familiar with, he lays on top of that the supernatural. Because the rest of verse 2 tells us, and the word of God came to John, 
the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now Luke has been careful to point out to us that John the Baptist has a divine origin of birth, that he has a divine purpose and calling upon his life. And now he's telling us that even the words that he's going to speak are going to be divine in their origin. He is going to be speaking the words of God. Verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. If you're underlining in your Bible, let me encourage you, underline the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now Luke 2 that we looked at last week has completely focused on Jesus' birth and his early years. But that has been a diversion. That's been a focus just on Jesus, but it stepped away from the, the theme in Luke 1. Luke 3 is picking that theme right back up. Because Luke 1 tells us about the divine birth and the prophecies over John's life. And Luke 3 is going to pick right up with that. And so I want you to see the connection there. So turn back a couple pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read some of the final verses of that chapter. Because when John is born and his father is given the ability to speak again after nine months of silence, he speaks and his mouth immediately gives praise and prophecy. And he prophesies over his son in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He is drawing on the inspiration of Isaiah the prophet, just as Luke would again in chapter 3. Verse 77, To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Verse 77 refers us back to verse 6, which tells us the knowledge of the salvation of God. It refers us back to chapter 3, verse 3, which talks about the remission of sins. He's telling us that God sent John to prepare the way for Jesus. And he sent him with this message. And Luke wants us to see that though there are characters in the story like John the Baptist that they are just role players in the grand narrative that God has been about from the beginning. That when John the Baptist appears on the scene, he is carrying out the work that God has already prepared him for. John was going to prepare the way, but God was preparing him to prepare the way. God was working all of these details out so that he could be the preparer. And then John prepares himself. Because verse 80 there in Luke 1, look down at it. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. If you heard our message last week on Luke 2, you can hear the similarity between how Luke 1.80 refers to the development of John the Baptist to the way that Luke tells us about the development of Jesus. And so John the Baptist will be the preparer, but God has prepared the way for him, and then he has prepared his heart for this work. John goes to the desert and is there in waiting for God to instruct him, to guide him. He's there preparing himself for the time of preparing. 
This probably feels like a long, long time ago, but just two years ago, on December 8th in 2018, there was a massive earthquake in Alaska, registered 7.0 on the Richter scale. It happened on a Friday. Some of you might remember some of the footage or the video that they showed from Alaska. A lot of the damage happened to their roads and their highways. No one died in the catastrophe because Alaska was very prepared for earthquakes. A lot of times when we think of earthquakes, we think of California. But Alaska experiences more earthquakes than California does. And so their roads, their highways were torn up. The following Wednesday, so from Friday to Wednesday, all of those main highways were repaired. And I was amazed when I read that. Because we've been working on the Lloyd Expressway for 40 years. And it's not fixed yet. How did they fix those roads so quickly? Well, the reason is that they had been preparing for that moment. Because they know that they suffer from these earthquakes. Because they know that their roadways are so important. That as they were entering into winter and the snows were coming, they would need good roads that they could easily salt and clear so that the supplies needed for those cities and towns would be able to make their way in. The night that the earthquake happened, people were flying in from the other cities. The night that it happened, people were making preparations and plans to bring in the gravel, to lay out the roads, to carry away the broken asphalt. But there was also another group that wouldn't be working for days. It was those that would lay the asphalt. You see, it, it takes a lot of heat to melt down asphalt. A lot of heat. And it takes a lot of heat to melt down asphalt in the winter in Alaska. And so on that Friday evening, the owners and managers of asphalt companies went into their asphalt factories, which were shut down for the winter, and they turned on their heaters. They knew that in a few days, their asphalt would be needed to repair these roads. So they went ahead and they turned on the heaters that night. What happens here in John's life in verse 80 is the flipping on of the burners. God is going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to pave the way for Jesus. And what's happening here in John's heart is God is preparing the one who will prepare the way. John's going to play this important role, and God is preparing him for this moment. So then the moment comes. Look back at chapter 3 and verse 7. I want you to see that when the moment comes for John to prepare the way, verse 7 says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Welcome. We are so glad that you're here. No. He says, You brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't justify yourselves as Jews. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The moment comes for John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, and he does not do it with much hospitality. He calls the people snakes. And he asks the rhetorical question, who warns you of the coming judgment? Now, I think that if you could catch John after the message, 
after he had said these things. And you ask John, John, what is the answer to that question? Who warned these people? I think that John the Baptist would have said, it must have been God. It must have been him who warned them. These people have come out to the wilderness searching for truth, searching for something, because their condition is so desperate that they were warned of the wrath to come in their hearts. They knew deep in their spirit that something was off, that something was wrong, that they were not finding the answers they needed in the temples or in the houses of judgment back in Jerusalem. They came searching because God sent them searching. They came to be prepared by the one who was prepared because God had prepared them for this moment as well. You say, boy, that's kind of convoluted, Pastor Daniel. Well, Jesus would tell us in John 6, 44, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why did they come out to hear John the Baptist? Because the Father was drawing them. He was preparing them. We are free will Baptists, which means that we believe God has given man the freedom to accept God's work in his life or reject him. But even we recognize that that is only possible because of the grace of God working upon us. That we are only able to seek out God because he sought us out first. That we are only able to love him because he first loved us. That we don't even know where to begin unless God begins with us. And this is so important. Because if we miss this theological truth, we'll think, well, we just need to recreate the methods of John the Baptist or recreate the methods of Peter or recreate the methods of Paul and then we'll have the fruit that they had. No, God was at work in these people preparing them just as he was preparing John. So much of this is out of my hands. And if the past year has taught us anything, it's, just, it's taught us just how much we don't have control over I have no idea what's going to happen this week or the rest of this month or the rest of this year. And it doesn't matter how hard I work or how much I read. I cannot outwork or outknow that uncertainty. Mark Sayers has said, God leads the dance of renewal and revival. We can be good dance partners, but there is no guaranteed formula for renewal. He is the one that leads the dance, and he is the one who invites us into the dance. There's this divine element, this powerful presence of God, and that is the only way that revival can take place. If we don't recognize that, we'll attempt to make revival happen in our own strength. We'll attempt to make revival happen through our own efforts. And there are some pastors and some preachers and some incredibly talented people that with their strength and their resources, they can build popularity and momentum, but that doesn't create revival. Because revival requires an inexhaustible source of power that is not found in any man, no matter how gifted or talented or savvy they might be. When humans discovered flight, there were two ideas that came together simultaneously. One, we came to understand Bernoulli's principle. Bernoulli's principle shows us that when a wing is shaped in a certain way, that there's a flat underside and a curved top side, that as air flows over and under the wing, that the air going over the top of the wing has further to go, so it must speed up to meet the air at the back of the wing. And that speeding up 
stretches the air out, basically it creates lift. That is the main concept of flight. But the Wright brothers did not take Bernoulli's principle and their understanding about the way that wings operate and say, if we can just get going fast enough, if we can just pedal hard enough. You see, the Wright brothers owned a bicycle store. They didn't take Bernoulli's principle and combine it with their ability to build bicycles and pedal fast and hard. They knew that they would never be able to produce enough thrust to provide the needed lift. So they built an engine cast out of aluminum that would be incredibly light but provide the needed horsepower. What we often do is we think that once we've got the right principles in place, once we've got the right shape to the wing, then we'll be able to pedal fast enough or flap our arms hard enough to cause this thing to take off. But in our church or in your life or in your marriage or in your family, you don't have enough strength and power. Only God can provide the needed thrust and power to carry this thing forward. Why did they stay? They stayed because God warned them. God was powering this movement. And because John spoke to them with spiritual authority. The authority with which John is going to speak to them is not his own. Luke is reiterating to us again and again, John was sent of God through miraculous design to be there in that moment at that time. And then God gives him the message as well. John's going to attract the following, but it won't be because of his charisma or because of his methods. It won't be because of his great location or his snappy dress. It'll be because of the spiritual authority he has. People came to listen to him because God had prepared their hearts and John was speaking to their hearts the word of God. John waited in the desert. He grew strong in spirit. He did no campaigning. He did no networking. The people came to him and heard the message. And because John had never done the work on his own, and it was clear that it was God working through him, it was very easy for John to step back and say, he must increase and I must decrease. There was never a moment that John the Baptist said, what the world needs more of is me. It was clear to him that what the world needs more of is Jesus. It needs Jesus. Mark Sayers has pointed out that ironically, it is when the leader discovers they can do nothing in their own power that a new kind of power emanates from their life. They gain spiritual authority when they recognize they have no power in and of themselves. When desperation sets in, and we realize that we are in this place where only God can make it happen. We begin to only trust in God to make it happen. And spiritual authority is fostered. But we miss that because we're always looking at the things that are different. When people think about John the Baptist, they think about what? They think about the fact that he ministered out in the wilderness and that he wore camel's fur and that he ate wild locusts and honey. But that's not what gave him authority and power. We don't need a group of people living out in bluegrass, eating honey and locusts. That's not what we need. What we need is that people who are speaking the word of God like John did. 
Henry Ford famously said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Henry Ford didn't ask people what they wanted, but rather he took a host of inventions that already existed and put them together to create the car. But what did people call it when he first created it? They called it the horseless buggy. They noticed not what it was, but what it wasn't. When people look at John the Baptist's life, they notice what it wasn't, how it was different. But they miss the engine inside of it that gave it power. John the Baptist could have been the same person living inside of Jerusalem, wearing fashionable clothes and eating the best food and still preach the message of God. But none of that mattered to him because he had the Word of God. It wasn't John the Baptist's methods. It was his message that was divinely inspired and powered. Because John had the power of God, he didn't need any of the rest of those things. So he comes preaching a message of repentance, a baptism of repentance. And this isn't even really new, because the people were familiar with baptism, of cleansing. If you read Leviticus 14 and 15, you'll see that there is a whole list of reasons that men and women could be considered ceremonially unclean, and they would have to be cleansed before they could gather with the congregation of people again. They would have to be washed and they would quarantine, and then they would get the okay from a priest before they could gather with God's people again. So they had these pools where they could be cleansed because they didn't have a shower or a bathtub in their home like most of us do. But what John was telling them about was a baptism not of ceremonial cleansing, but rather of repentance. Because ceremonial cleansing could take care of the dirtiness of what had happened in the past to make you presently clean to enter the congregation. But what John the Baptist was talking about was a baptism that would make you clean, not just from your past and in the present, but into the future. He would tell them that it was a figure of the baptism that Jesus would bring that would be a baptism of the Spirit, of the Spirit and of power, a baptism that would give them the ability, empower them to live a life that was different that was going in a new direction. The ceremonial cleansing that they did, it was something they regularly did as they made their way through the regular commute of their lives. There were things that were going to happen to men and women on a regular basis that made them ceremonial, uncle- ceremonial unclean. That was going to be just an ongoing thing. But what John the Baptist is talking about is leaving the regular commute of life and living in a completely different way. It's turning 180 degrees from what is normal to live in a new way and follow Jesus. And the way that John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus is by preparing the hearts of people to follow him. The way that John the Baptist is paving the road for Jesus is by paving a road through the hearts and minds of his followers. Back in this day, there would be those that were called forerunners, like John the Baptist is called a forerunner. And they would go and make sure that when a king or some dignitary was going to come to some part of the kingdom, they would make sure that there were good roads for the king to get there. The king couldn't be trapped in the mud or in a bottleneck, a place where they could be attacked or ambushed. And so the forebearers, the forerunners would go before a the king was coming and make sure that there were good roads and a safe place for them to stay and a good way for them to get out. John the Baptist comes and he is the forerunner who prepares the way of Jesus, but he's not paving roads, he's paving hearts. 
And he's making the way clear in the hearts and minds of people. He's making sure that they are ready to follow Jesus. And then he builds urgency. He tells them to bear fruits of repentance and that they should know that the axe is already laid to the root of the tree and that any tree that is not bearing fruit of repentance would be cut down and thrown into the fire. I want you to see this picture. There's a tree, and if the tree is not bearing fruit, the tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so then the people respond. And Luke is not only giving us the synopsis of John's message, but he tells us how it is lived out in the lives of the people who heard. And so look at John chap- or Luke chapter 3 and verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? What do we do, John? What do we do? And this phrase, Luke is going to use again and again and again in his writings as people react to the message of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ and Peter and Paul. Again and again we're going to see people saying, So what do I do? I want to just run through all of these occurrences really quick. Chapter 3 and verse 10, this is the people say to John the Baptist, what should we do? John the Baptist tells them, anyone with two tunics, give one to someone who doesn't have one. Be generous with what you have and bless those that are without. In chapter 12, the tax collectors come and they say, what should we do? And John the Baptist says, do not charge anyone more than you should, but rather live with integrity. In verse 14, soldiers come and they say, John, what should we do? And he tells them that they should live with kindness and be content with the wages that they're given of the Romans. In Luke 10, 25, a lawyer comes and says, what should I do that I should have eternal life? Jesus says, love your neighbor, even if he's different from you, even if he's as different as a Samaritan. Luke 18, 18, a rich young ruler comes and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at his heart and knows that he loves his riches, so he tells them, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He tells them to live a life of minimalism and generosity. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, the people who cried out, crucify him, now say, Peter, what should we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized. In Acts 16.30, a godless Philippian jailer seeing the witness of Paul and Silas in the jail after an earthquake when they could have escaped and they didn't. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they tell this godless man to believe. And in Acts 22 and verse 10, Paul is telling us his conversion story, how when he was a zealous Jew who was persecuting the church, Jesus appeared to him and he said, what should I do? And Jesus said, follow me and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, each one of these people are asking the same question, but every one of them is given a different answer. And if after the service today, every one of you lined up and asked me, what should I do to go to heaven? And I told each of you a different answer, you'd say that is incredibly inconsistent. But I want you to see that there is no inconsistency here. But rather, these are all different fruits on the same tree. Every one of them is being told, This is what your life will look like if you go in the opposite direction from the direction you're currently going. For the people, he says, be generous with what you have. To the tax collectors who were cheating, he tells them to be honest. To the soldiers who were taking advantages of people, he tells them to be kind. To the lawyer who doesn't like his neighbor, he tells them to love his neighbor. For the rich young ruler who loves his riches, he tells them to get rid of it. 
It's all apples on the same tree, and the seed of that tree is repentance. If I told you that the way to get into heaven, to the way to, the, to belong to the kingdom of God, was to produce apples, you would not go home and take an apple off of the counter and stare at it and say, what way can I chemically reproduce this in a lab? No, you would cut the apple open and you would plant the seeds or you'd buy ground to cultivate an orchard and every year plant and tend to those seeds so that you had a harvest of apples. And the way that we belong to the kingdom of God is not by being kind and having integrity and being generous and loving our neighbors, but rather it's repenting of our sins and then the fruit of those seeds is all of those things. The way that we bear the fruits of repentance is we repent. And the fruit will be generosity, integrity, kindness, contentment, love, faith, and evangelism. How do we bear fruits of repentance? We repent. We plant the seeds of repentance. Right now, we are desperately in need of Jesus. We need Him to come. How do we prepare for Jesus to arrive? We do what John did. We plant seeds of repentance. Our nation is in crisis. Our world is in turmoil. And everyone is wondering, what should we do? We should repent. And that should start with us, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the sons and daughters of God. And let us not say, but we are Christians. We are believers. We are holy. John said, God will raise up new sons and daughters from the stones on the ground. Repent. The call to prepare the way is a call to prepare our hearts. And the way that we prepare our hearts is in repentance. So in this moment, right now, I beg you to go into that dusty, dark, and cold place in your heart and flip on the burner. Because I believe that God wishes to pave a new way. And He desires to prepare us to be that way. He desires to prepare us to prepare our hearts. Let's prepare the way for the King through repentance. Join me in prayer.